0: Well, hello and good evening. It's great to be with you again. Uh, If we've not met, I'm Stuart Holman, part of the ministry team here. And as Bill said at the beginning of the service, we have indeed arrived at the conclusion to the book of Jonah, that account of the reluctant missionary prophet uh, sent to Nineveh to preach to the people there. Now, Nineveh, as we heard last week, is the capital city of the emerging superpower right next door to Israel. Uh, They were the greatest threat to Israel as at the time. And and they were actually people of a really kind of fearsome reputation, fearsome in their wickedness and fearsome in their violence. In fact, Nineveh's wickedness was so great that we hear about it in the very first verse of the book. Uh, God sends Jonah to preach against their wickedness. In other words, to condemn them, to say, judgment is coming. And Jonah's response to that is to run away, run in entirely the opposite direction, I think driven by fear and driven by hatred. Uh, eventually, after some surprising adventures, Jonah does arrive in Nineveh and he announces 40 more days and there will be God's destruction. Shortest sermon ever, four words in Hebrew. In another surprising twist, the people of Nineveh hear the word of God and they repent. They humble themselves and they mourn their wickedness and they turn away from their sin. So that's where we're picking up the narrative today. Hopefully you've got your Bible open at Jonah chapter 4 because we're going to be looking at that in a little bit of detail. When we look at chapter 4, we see that there are really three main sections. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, there's Jonah's anger over God's mercy, which concludes with that rhetorical question, is it right for you to be angry? Then the second part, verses 5 through 9, Jonah's anger over the plant, which concludes with a question, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And then verses 10 and 11, God's response to Jonah's anger. Chronologically, it actually seems that that plant incident in the middle, verses 5 through 9, that actually happens in that period of 40 days, you know, while well, after Jonah's finished preaching in Nineveh uh, and, and he's waiting for the 40 days to, to be up, that's when the plant incident actually happens. He's now at a safe distance away from Nineveh, hoping for fire and brimstone to come raining down on Nineveh, just as it did on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's why if you're having a look at verse 5, it begins... Jonah had gone out and sat in a place east of the city. So that's kind of the backstory to verses 1 through 4. And it's only when we know the backstory to verses 1 through 4 that verses 10 and 11 make any sense. So already we're looking at this narrative and we're seeing, wow, this is told really carefully. It's got this backstory inserted in there so that we will feel the force of verses 10 and 11. This book is ultimately about Jonah's attitude and our attitude toward the people who most need God. So that's where we're going to focus our attention. And this final chapter is carefully constructed so that we land there. But first of all, verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah is angry. And he's angry that God did not bring destruction on Nineveh. So if you have a look at verse 1 with me, uh, I'll read it out. Uh, But to Jonah, this, that is God's mercy, seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? See, rather than rejoicing over God's mercy, Jonah's red hot and angry. He, tellingly, he says he knew God would relent from sending judgment upon the Ninevites. It's as though he's saying, God, I knew you would always just back down and go soft. Uh, Jonah claims... That's the real reason why I didn't even want to go to Nineveh and why I ran away to Tarshish. Now, whether that's actually true or not, we don't know. It doesn't say it in chapter 1. But what Jonah does is he quotes Exodus 34 verses 6 and 7 back at God, which you know is always going to be dangerous, right? He recalls how God described himself to Moses at Mount Sinai. Uh, here's what God said on that day. He proclaims his name to Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. almost mockingly, Jonah is saying to God that you could only ever act according to your character according to the name that you revealed to Moses all those years ago, that name the Lord or Yahweh, which is the Hebrew form of it, it means, I am who I am, I will be whom I will be, compassionate and gracious. That's God's nature. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. However, God is also creator and judge. You see, the very next words of exactly the same verse that Jonah wants to quote back at God, say this, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. God's mercy is only real because his judgment is real. It's not mercy without a genuine judgment. You know, God's sometimes characterized as kind of a split personality God, Uh, you know, Old Testament God, angry God. Uh, all about fire and brimstone and judgment. But when Jesus comes along, God suddenly flips and, uh, you know, he's all about grace, mercy and forgiveness. One minute, angry, mean God. Next minute, nice, friendly God. What's going on with that? When we carefully read the whole Bible, we soon realise how that simplistic idea completely misrepresents the God of the whole Bible. You see, God's intense love for human beings means that He must reject the, He must uh, judge those who reject Him, and yet He does provide salvation for some. When we say God loves human beings, we don't mean with a kind of you know sentimental love, uh, you know, lovey-dovey infatuation that oh would never hurt their feelings. When we say God loves. Human beings, we mean that it is a mature, intense, strong love of a spouse that would never allow another to take their proper place. This rightly jealous love, jealous in a good way, means God must judge. And yet, He also offers salvation to those who turn to Him. Jonah has this overly simplistic kind of view of God which says, no, God's always passionate. He's He's the pushover God, right? And assuming this to be so, Jonah shakes his fist at God and he says, I told you so. Your compassion always means that wicked people get away with it. And in the face of Jonah's kind of posturing and pouting anger, God asserts his right to be merciful but he does it very gently first of all in verse 4 he simply says have you the right to be angry and the question is just left hanging there but the implication's pretty clear right god is entitled to be merciful but jonah does not have the right to be angry you see this is not a discussion between two equals God is God. He is supreme in power and authority. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And Jonah, he's merely human, created by God, dependent on God and a subordinate creature. Sometimes you hear people say, I can't believe a God. I can't believe in a God who would judge people or condemn people. It's just so unfair that God would favour these people and disadvantage those people. You see, all of those ideas are premised on the same underlying assumption, which is God is, accept- God is accountable to me. God has to answer to me. Uh, I have to approve of his actions and I deserve a satisfactory explanation for whatever God is doing, as though I was God's superior. Jonah's angry because he doesn't approve of God's mercy On the enemies of Israel. He assumes that God will need to justify himself to us, his creatures, which he doesn't. And so Jonah shakes his fist at God. But there's a backstory, right, to this situation which will clarify God's position for us. So in verse 5, we see the backstory. So Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he'd made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. You can kind of see Jonah there, can't you? Bring on the fire and brimstone. He wheels it down out of heaven. As he sits a safe distance away and he waits for the 40th day. Which passes? Nothing happens. 41, 42, nothing but mercy Nineveh. In one sense, I think this could have been the turning point of the story. Up to this point in the story, we have seen every character turn away from their sin and turn to God. The sailors on the boat, people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, they've all mourned their wicked ways and they have submitted themselves to God, every one of them except Jonah. Sitting under his makeshift shelter, He's got time to think, right? Time to look back on all the ways that God has had mercy on him. The ways that God has been compassionate to him. God saved him from drowning. God saved him from the stomach of the fish. God saved him from the wicked and ruthless Ninevites. And just in case Jonah hasn't got the picture yet, God shows him mercy and compassion one more time through his experience with the plant. That's what's happening in verses 6 through 9. So follow along as I read. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose... God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So here's Jonah sitting obstinately in the heat of the desert to see what's going to happen to Nineveh. And God provides this wonderful, miraculously growing plant, nice shade and shelter. The plant is God's sovereign initiative of kindness towards Jonah. In fact, there's a double meaning in the text there uh, where it says in those words, God provided a vine to ease his discomfort. You could also translate that, God provided a vine to deliver him from his evil. God is showing generous concern towards Jonah once again because he wants to win him back. He wants Jonah to be with him, on his side, as it were. He wants Jonah to learn his ways. But what's Jonah's problem? Jonah can't handle God acting as God. In verse 3, he questions God about Nineveh. And now, verse 9, he questions God about his right to destroy the plant. In effect, Jonah wants it both ways, right? He, he demands that God exercise justice and judgment upon the Ninevites, verse 3, and now he demands God have mercy on him with the plant. A second time now, God says to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the plant? Of course, Jonah had no right to be angry about God's mercy to the Ninevites. And now he wants to get all angry about the loss of the plant. This time God is uh, on the receiving end of a bit of a spray from Jonah. He is so angry that Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. Is that the last word? It's not at all. Verses 9 and 10, God has the last word. And he elaborates now on this question that he has posed to Jonah about his right to be angry. He didn't elaborate back in verse 3, but now he does. So verse 10, but the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, also with many animals. You see, in contrast to Jonah's anger, God's final word is the word of compassion. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If God should preserve the plant for Jonah, shouldn't he also preserve the people of Nina, who are worth way more than the plants? And if these people are ignorant about God, they don't know their right from their left when it comes to God, Surely they need to hear God's word first. Judgment without an opportunity to repent is hardly justice, is it? And then the book finishes. Kind of weird, right? Should I not be concerned about that great city and then nothing? I looked at my Bible and I had like a blank half page at the bottom of the Jonah bit. Did I miss something? Was there a printing error? No, that's it. A sudden ending to the narrative. Will Jonah turn back to God? Or will God's judgment fall on Jonah instead of on the Ninevites? We're not told because this book is not ultimately about Jonah, the reluctant prophet. Instead, this book is about God's sovereign mercy. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, even on Israel's enemies, if he should choose to do so. It's very similar, isn't it, to that, that parable that we read from Jesus in Matthew 20 a little earlier. It kind of works on us, the readers, in exactly the same way. The man who owns the vineyard, he employs the workers, he can be as kind and as generous to them as he likes. He can pay the ones who worked only an hour the same amount as those who worked all day because he's fair. He's fair in that the guy who worked all day, he got paid exactly what he signed up for, a denarius, Seems fair. Well, it doesn't feel fair. And yet God, just like the owner of the vineyard, chooses to be generous. I wonder how this is messing with your view of God. Do you think God is like this? Does your view of God demand justice for everyone? Hard justice. And I want it now. And if that is your view of God... How do you feel about hard justice for you right now? I feel kind of nervous about that. I think if the book of Jonah shows us anything, it's that God is absolute in his commitment to grace for the undeserving. That unresolved ending puts the spotlight back on us and asks whether we are committed to God's ways Or are we opposed to God's ways? We're left with that really thorny rhetorical question. Should not God be concerned for 120,000 people who deserve judgment? Just like the people of Roseville. Just like the people of Chatswood and Linfield and Lane Cove and French's Forest. There are about 120,000 people who live within a 15-minute drive of right where we're standing right now the vast majority of those people on Judgment Day could expect to face God's wrath. And God cares about that. God wants to have mercy on them. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ so they can turn and be saved. And we know this. And we can do something about this. Amongst the people who are hearing these words today, I expect there'll be kind of a range of responses. I wonder if you feel like, you know what, I'm really just ready for some baby steps on this one uh, at the moment. Well, okay, if that's you, good. Here's an easy suggestion. Our heart for the lost is changed when we start praying for specific people. If you don't already, name some people before God and start praying for them regularly. Pray and don't give up. And then plan to see them. Actually follow through on that prayer and say, okay, Lord, what will you do now that I'm praying for my friend? Be ready to be a friend. Love that person. Maybe this moment today will actually be a time when you do something different as a result of hearing God's word. I hope that's for you. There'll be some other people, though, who will hear this message of Jonah, and with it, they'll recognize that God could use them with the Ninevites, among a people of a different culture, people of a different experience and background and circumstances to us. You know what? I could actually be useful there. You might see the urgent need of Christian people to live amongst the less reached and the less resourced of God's kingdom. Other places in our city, okay. Other places in our world. Could you be someone that God could use in those circumstances. Maybe that's you. You might become the missionary that Jonah failed to be. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. But I want to leave us with this thought. If God is absolute in his commitment to grace for the underserving, we who've already received it, we will want to share that with others. May, they, may that be our experience. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you for your mercy and goodness and kindness. We know, Lord, that we don't deserve it, and we are so glad that you are generous. Thank you. Father, please, having received your mercy, give us a heart that is like your heart, that cares for those who need you most. And Father, will you guide us and direct us in ways that we can actually demonstrate your heart? Be hands and feet. For your love, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.